I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views was brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews, and those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're joined by returning guest Jonathan Marshall, author of the fascinating book Dark Quadrant, Organized Crime, Big Business, and the Corruption of American Democracy from Truman to Trump. A while back, he wrote a rather fascinating piece for Lobster Magazine entitled Wall Street the supermob, and the CIA dealing with shady figures like Sidney Korshak, the infamous Hollywood fixer with ties to the Chicago outfit. We'll be discussing all that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. Now on to the conversation with Jonathan Marshall about his Lobster Magazine piece, Wall Street, the Supermob, and the CIA. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Jonathan Marshall, author of Dark Quadrant, Organized Crime, Big Business, and the Corruption of American Democracy from Truman to Trump, and also the author of the Lobster Magazine essay that we're going to be talking about today. Wall Street, the super mob, and the CIA. That is quite the title. How are you doing today, Jonathan? <laughs> Very well, thank you. So I guess where we should begin is Wall Street, the super mob, and the CIA. Give my listeners a little bit of background on how these three things are apparently connected and how they tie into what students of the study of the deep state uh, called deep politics. 
Sure. Well, this uh, the title sort of brings together a sort of like a unified field theory, three of the biggest targets of uh, alternative researchers. And uh, I'm hopeful that it's not a matter of sensationalism, but of uh, really careful research showing that these these uh, somewhat disparate areas really are connected. And this very long article, almost 30,000 words, was a spin-off of the book that you mentioned, Dark Quadrant. Uh, there was, the, the book was long enough as it was and uh, like nearly 200 pages of footnotes. So I just decided to spin this off. And it's all based around uh, a very, very obscure report that came out in 1964 by the House Banking Committee, which at that time was chaired by a rather progressive and cantankerous uh, Texas Democrat named Wright Patman, who was a big believer in uh, antitrust, the breaking up of monopolies. This was long before the kind of big turn in Texas politics to the far right. Uh, and this report came out, it got basically zero attention because it was so, uh, impenetrable, but it was looking at the uh, many complex business dealings of a New York stockbroker named David Baird, who used three tax exempt foundations to engage in a host of improper business activities. Uh, what he did was take advantage of the tax exempt status of these foundations to engage in stock purchases and sales, uh, help favored clients take over major, major businesses and, and kind of monopolize whole industries even, particularly in the entertainment, uh, leisure, hotel industry, real estate, and so on and so forth. And uh, so that was kind of interesting in its own right that the tax laws were being abused and that the Internal Revenue Service had done very little to stop it but buried way, way down in the hearings that accompanied this report was a brief admission that some of these foundations had worked for the CIA. And that kind of was shocking. Again, it got virtually no notice until several years later when stories began breaking in Ramparts Magazine, a sort of new left uh, magazine, and then major media all over the world about the role of various foundations as fronts for CIA money laundering into international organizations. Uh, so that, again, got a lot of attention in 1967. There were stories about how the uh, National Students Association was getting money from the CIA, as were organizations involved in Africa, the Middle East, and so on and so forth. But what had never been done uh, until my article was to show that these foundations run by this stockbroker, David Baird, also were heavily used by uh, mob-controlled or mob-affiliated business people. And as I began to look at their activities, I realized that um, <clears throat> there really was a complex and important relationship going on here where the CIA was using these foundations for its own ends, for laundering money, uh, as I mentioned, with, to be untraceable back to the CIA. But where the owner of the foundations, in this case, David Baird, was using his CIA connection to buy immunity from prosecution by the IRS 
and Securities and Exchange Commission. That was why, unbeknownst to this House Banking Committee, he had enjoyed such uh, immunity from prosecution for his very nefarious use of these prosecutions. And then, to top it off, uh, these major businesses that he was working with and investors who played a really critical role in American business history in the 1950s and 1960s in the development, as I say, of entertainment industries, real estate, uh, hotels, and so forth, uh, and fed into one of the biggest merger movements in US history in the 1960s, was being fueled in part by organized crime funds. So you had this just very unholy relationship, as I put it, between the Wall Street, the super mob, and the CIA. And uh, that's what I tried to pick apart in as uh, understandable a way as I could, given the complex relationships. But uh, I think it, it's a really, really critical part of our history that has hitherto gone largely unnoticed. Now, when it comes to this issue of organized crime and the CIA, what's the first thing you go to when people uh, look at that topic and maybe view it askance? They're, they're sort of like, oh, what, what do you mean? Organized crime working with the CIA? I, I'm sure there's people that have uh, given you that look like, oh, what are you talking about? But we, we can look at a lot of things that happened uh, in the 20th century and see that there were ties between the intelligence community and uh, the mob. Certainly. Fortunately, this is a case where we no longer have the usual eye rolling, oh, yeah, that's another idiotic conspiracy theory. Because in 1975, we finally got official acknowledgement that the CIA had worked closely with U US mafia leaders uh, in a conspiracy to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro. And that's uh, now been the subject of many, many histories and news articles and uh, documentaries and so forth, uh, which always, of course, get embroidered more and more as the years go by. So you have to watch out for uh, what's true and what's not. But unquestionably, this is true. And the CIA fortunately documented this itself in a secret report that was commissioned by President Johnson in 1967 of then CIA Director Richard Helms when news stories began leaking to uh, a, a columnist, Drew Pearson and Jack Anderson, who were then among the nation's leading newspaper columnists. They wrote about these plots uh, rather elusively, not with a lot of detail, but they created enough stir that Johnson demanded uh, the truth about this. The CIA uh, commissioned an internal top secret investigation. Only a single copy of its report was ever kept uh, in the CIA director's locked safe. And uh, only in 1975 was this report finally unearthed and became the subject then of a major congressional investigation that reported in 1976. Uh, even the CIA's investigation was hampered by a huge amount of, of uh, reluctance on the part of participants to tell the truth. And a number of key part players had died. So, we don't have the whole story, but we have enough to know that uh, indeed the mafia bosses of Chicago and of Southern Florida, along with one of their players on the West Coast, who was close to the entertainment industry, Hollywood and Las Vegas, 
were all basically conspiring with hitmen to either poison Castro or shoot him or, or other things like that. So that is no longer controversial, although it's sometimes conveniently forgotten. It's also sometimes thought to be a kind of outlier. The CIA's defense, though, has always been, hey, we're in the business of defending U.S. national security. That sometimes means playing with a rough crowd. And that's indeed why, and now we get into more controversial territory, the CIA has been repeatedly implicated in defending international narcotics traffickers. And again, <clears throat> although the CIA has taken great pains to try to disassociate itself from the facts, because of the whole war on drugs was supposedly a sacred national cause, very unquestionably, the CIA was in bed with key narcotics traffickers on the principle that these are people you sometimes have to work with in the larger cause of anti-communism. And the Drug Enforcement Administration repeatedly ran into cases where its targets would be protected by the CIA and ruled off limits to prosecution. So those are kind gonna, of I yep. just wanted to add in that regard, I was going to say, uh, you know, to this day, people will go after, you know, oh, that 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 that's Gary Webb stuff. That's Dark Alliance. And I, I respect uh, Webb's journalism very much, even if he may have made uh, a, a few mistakes on the way. But I mean, a, a lot of this CIA drug connection stuff, uh, you, you can even find it in the, you know, John Kerry report. Absolutely. So you're you're alluding to a report by a committee, the a subcommittee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that undertook a major study and many days of hearings on this, and reported numerous connections where the CIA was uh, apparently protecting traffickers in Central America at the same time the Reagan administration was uh, waging its so-called covert war against. The Sandinistas in Nicaragua via its vehicle, the Contras, the Nicaraguan Contras. And I later with my colleague, Peter Dale Scott, then at the University of California, co-authored a book, which I believe is still in print called Cocaine Politics, Drugs, Armies, and the CIA in Central America. And we just documented this ad nauseum. And again, at the time, it was considered somewhat controversial, but now I think it's pretty well-established wisdom. What, what caused major trouble for Gary Webb, uh, a reporter for the San Jose Mercury who took our material and then advanced it, was going further to claim that the CIA was itself peddling some of these drugs, which is not something that we had ever alleged, and that it was responsible for the whole crack epidemic in Los Angeles, for example, which I think is rather simplistic, given that drugs come from many, many different uh, locations and smugglers and players. What was going on was the CIA was basically lending protection to people. It was not itself hauling the drugs back and forth. And I might add that uh, this nefarious role of protecting criminals was finally acknowledged in a CIA inspector general's report that got virtually zero media attention. But it too now is an established fact and uh, was you know, the source of minor embarrassment. But by that time, we were moving on into new stages of the Cold War and people were less interested in the crimes and follies of the CIA. But uh, those, those are major 
associations and one only need to look at Afghanistan, which of course is still in the news today, the Taliban. The Taliban among other crimes has been linked to uh, drug trafficking, but uh, it's often forgotten in the media that the original big traffickers were the Islamist Mujahideen who were built up by the CIA in the 1980s to oppose uh, the Soviet army's occupation of Afghanistan. And those Mujahideen financed their cause with money from the CIA, money from Saudi Arabia, and a whole lot of money from the sale of heroin, which they uh, disposed of through the good offices of the Pakistani <laughs> intelligence services. The ISI. The ISI. So that was a gigantic drug boom. Uh, Afghanistan became the biggest supplier of uh, opiates in the world, all thanks to uh, support by the CIA of the drug trafficking Mujahideen. And, uh, you know, a classic example of blowback where our own interventions create further problems at home. And uh, so those are all cases of, of criminal involvement of the CIA. There are more subtle ones involving CIA's role with financial institutions in the Caribbean and Central America, which to this day remain only hinted at, largely unknown, but are almost certainly real. And these, these probably led to cover-ups of investigations of money laundering by the IRS. Um, so we, I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of some of these stories. It's uh, virtually impossible these days to get records out of the CIA, the, <clears throat> I just filed a Freedom of Information Act request for some rather innocuous old records from the National Archives. And they said, uh, great, get in line. We're processing requests now from 2014. So <laughs> you'll get them when it's your turn. I, uh, I just wanted to <laughs> add real quick too, uh, this relationship between uh, what Peter Dale Scott would call uh, the, the overworld and the underworld of power. Uh, you know, th this relationship between intelligence agencies and uh, organized crime. You can even, I believe, go back to World War II and uh, Operation Underworld, uh, where we had uh, mob figures helping, um, I think, sabotage uh, Axis spies um, at the northern seaboard ports um, in the US? There were a couple of uh, major uh, involvements of organized crime in US intelligence. The Office of Naval Intelligence, which was concerned about the German Navy and sabotage on America's ports, uh, made deals with the New York underworld, which controlled the uh, longshore unions and, and dock hands to watch for German spies and prevent sabotage in exchange for favors given to uh, imprisoned uh, New York mafia bosses, <laughs> one of whom named Charles Luciano, AKA Lucky Luciano was uh, freed from prison in 1946 and deported to uh, Italy where he spent his, his remaining uh, decades. Um, so that was a sweetheart deal. And the other major deal was between the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA, which consulted with mafia bosses who had uh, emigrated from Sicily 
and who were still in touch with uh, colleagues uh, in the Sicilian Mafia to get information on German uh, uh, military installations in Sicily, preparatory for the uh, Allied landings in Sicily in 1943. And then uh, deals were made with Sicilian Mafia bosses to prevent them from opposing the Allied landing. And this became the basis for a very long-standing alliance be between the US, uh, the Italian mafia, and the dominant or ruling Christian Democratic Party in Italy, which for decades was taking money from and protecting uh, mafia groups in Italy. Uh, and to this day, Ital Italy is suffering terribly from this legacy of deep, deep uh, systemic corruption. So yes, it goes back to then. And uh, I'm sure you could trace ties between intelligence communities and criminal networks going back many centuries, because it's a natural form of alliance. Criminals have access to people. They have the kind of, uh, they have the uh, brute strength you might want to employ. And uh, uh, they have all sorts of resources that are valuable to intelligence agencies. Real quick, uh, and then I want to get into uh, David Beard a little bit more. Uh, at the beginning of the article, you mention a case that is a, a good study in all of this, which is the uh, Albert Parvin Foundation. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it was connected on one end uh, to uh, a syndicate fronting for uh, Meyer Lansky, and on the other hand, uh, had funded an actual CIA agent uh, by the name of Volman. Sure. But this is one of those uh, long forgotten, but, you know, curious parts of American history. We <clears throat> are obsessed these days by partisan conflicts over the Supreme Court. And uh, one of the kind of most critical partisan conflicts uh, over the Supreme Court had to do with a justice appointed by uh, Lyndon Johnson to the Supreme Court, who happened to be LBJ's personal lawyer and fix-it man, a man who knew lots about Johnson's corruption, named Abe Fortas. Uh, well, as it happened, <clears throat> uh, Fortas was taking money from a corrupt investor, and that helped uh, force him off the court. But uh, Fortas's wife, in turn, was working for a foundation named after Albert Parvin, who was a casino decorator and casino owner who sold the famous Flamingo Hotel Casino in Las Vegas to a syndicate led by Meyer Lansky in 1960. The Flamingo was already notorious because it was the first major uh, casino on the new Las Vegas Strip. There had been a few casinos in the kind of dusty old downtown of Las Vegas, but this newly developed area outside central Las Vegas called the Strip was where the new glitzy casinos went that would attract gamblers from uh, Los Angeles and, and all over Southern California. And it was developed by basically New York mobsters, including Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, who may be a name known to some of your listeners. <clears throat> and uh, went through several hands until Albert Parvin got hold of it. He had actually helped decorate the casino, uh, then took control of it, and then finally sold it. And with the millions he made from the sale of the casino, he set up a foundation 
And as I mentioned, he employed uh, Abe Fortas's wife in this uh, foundation. And for that became the subject of a massive uh, investigation led by Gerald Ford, then a House uh, Republican congressman who later, of course, became uh, vice president and to Nixon and then uh, uh, president after Nixon's resignation. So Ford used various organized crime connections of Parvin to help uh, <clears throat> discredit not only Fortis's wife, but also to go after Justice William Douglas, who was the most liberal member of the Supreme Court. He was trying to get William Douglas thrown off the Supreme Court. And uh, the reason was Douglas was on retainer to this foundation, doing apparently very little work in return for a lot of money. Well, I chose a different tack for this article in pointing out rather briefly that Parvin, who was clearly involved with the mob up to his eyeballs, used much of it, most of his money to for various projects of all places in the Dominican Republic. And uh, the Dominican Republic in the early 60s was a prime hunting ground for American mobsters who had been kicked out of Cuba by the Castro revolution. And they were looking for uh, opportunities to invest in gambling casinos. But he also pumped a lot of money into a uh, East European emigre uh, named Sasha Volman, who was working for the CIA. And this is quite clearly documented that Volman was a social Democrat who was doing labor and social organizing to basically stave off uh, communist gains uh, over social, you know, social discontent. And uh, this was the sophisticated wing of the CIA that was doing this. Most conservatives and right-wingers saw social Democrats and communists as just part of the same problem. The CIA was much more liberal and sophisticated and realized that they could undercut communists through this kind of appeal to social democracy. And the Parvin Foundation was one of the CIA's vehicles for doing this. So I was illustrating a very clear connection between the CIA and the mob through his foundation. The investigation of Justice Douglas was sort of clueless about this, this whole business, but I'm sure the CIA was very concerned that one of its foundation conduits was running afoul of, of uh, this Republican-led investigation. But that was merely a kind of uh, segue into these other foundations led by David Baird that were even more obscure that had a, a kind of wide world of organized crime connections. So for people who are unfamiliar, uh, basically the way we could sum up David G. Baird is mob-linked New York stockbroker, uh, conducted many of uh, his high-level corporate deals during the 50s and early 60s through three tax-exempt charitable organizations. And I guess the one uh, that really we need to hone in on is uh, David Josephine and Winfold Baird Foundation Incorporated, which I guess reporters found out in 1967 was a financial agent of the CIA's International Organization Division, along with several dozen other foundations. And this foundation uh, gave you know massive five, six-figure contributions to uh, various 
uh, institutions and, and whatnot. Uh, so maybe let's get into that a little bit and who David G. Baird was. Sure. Well, yes, some of these, uh, these recipients of his money are today not maybe widely known, but were very well-known and, and well-respected institutions at the time, the African-American Institute, the American Friends of the Middle East, uh, the National Council of Churches, you don't get more respectable than that, uh, and the what was called the Synod of Bishops of the Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which is basically the CIA was attempting to organize opposition to the Soviet Union through cultivating uh, members of the Orthodox Russian Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. <clears throat> and you find a lot of right-wing emigre Russians were connected to this group. Anyway, Baird was sort of an unlikely person to be connected with all of this. He didn't have a whole lot of special interest in the Middle East or certainly the Russian Orthodox Church. Although, as it happened, one of his closest business partners, a man named Serge Semenenko, who was one of the top vice presidents at First National Bank of Boston, was himself uh, a Russian emigre and a major supporter of the Russian Orthodox Church. And we'll, we can get into him a little bit later. But Baird had, as I say, had no particular interest in this until the very early 1960s, when, as I point out, a little tongue in cheek, just by happenstance, he was under investigation by the IRS and Securities and Exchange Commission for massive illegal use of his foundations for uh, business deals, uh, brokerage transactions, uh, corporate takeovers and the like, all using tax-free vehicles. And all these investigations suddenly went nowhere and uh, they started going nowhere at precisely the same time that Baird began laundering money for the CIA. We don't know exactly how Baird set up his connection to the CIA, but he knew so many people on Wall Street and the CIA in turn was so heavily staffed at its senior levels by Wall Street investors, investment bankers and corporate lawyers that it's incredibly easy to imagine Baird just picked up the phone and uh, very quickly give an entree to the CIA. Uh, and he had a history of, of basically using political front groups. I mentioned his uh, involvement in a group called the Navy League, which was uh, full of kind of criminals and shady investors who, who uh, all professed their great love of the US Navy, which gave them a sort of political protection in terms of the, you know, what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex. So essentially they were using political fronts to, to give themselves political protection. And Baird is someone who we know remarkably little about. Uh, he kind of came out of nowhere, rose quickly in the insurance industry, ran into some problems with regulators, eventually quit corporate life and set himself up in business as a broker dealer. Um, Early on in the 1930s, he developed a very close relationship with Franklin Roosevelt, which I point out might just possibly be related to the fact that he gave a gigantic six-figure loan to one of Roosevelt's sons who was in financial difficulty. And lo and behold, he was being invited to uh, meetings with President Roosevelt. 
But he used these kinds of political and business connections to uh, have an extremely successful career up until the mid 60s when he finally ran into so much trouble over these foundation issues that he kind of quietly took all his money into retirement. Could you speak a little bit to uh, the biggest issues he faced uh, with these foundations? As I mentioned, uh, one of the key you know, reasons to have a foundation is that uh, if they meet various charitable criteria, they become tax exempt. And as you can imagine, uh, that's worth a lot of money to people, particularly back in the 1950s when under President Eisenhower, the top tax rate was over 90%. Uh, good Republican uh, president had far higher tax rates than we have today. And uh, so if you could move your money around and buy and sell stocks and get capital gains and so on and pay almost no tax on it, it was worth a lot of money. And that's uh, precisely what he did. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the IRS basically uh, found that he was doing commercial securities transactions on tens of millions of dollars of uh, these transactions, borrowing money, buying, selling, et cetera, without paying taxes. Uh, so he, and he's he was flaunting security laws, essentially. Flaunting securities and tax laws, both. He was, these were unregistered transactions with the SEC, untaxed translation, uh, transactions with the IRS. So it was just wildly illegal, but again, uh, basically staved off any serious prosecution of, of these crimes. And, and that's likely because of this CIA connection. Indeed. And in fact, we know, I alluded earlier to the fact that the uh, House Banking Committee led by Wright Patman had held hearings and had heard very, very brief testimony about a CIA connection. And they heard that from the IRS's uh, attorney, a man named Mitch Rogovan. And uh, you know, the committee knew nothing about this. They knew, they did not in fact know that very secretly, Rogovan, this, they heard him testify in 1964. They didn't know that he had been behind the scenes, the secret agent for the CIA in, in uh, negotiating the release of prisoners following the Bay of Pigs operation, which was the CIA-led invasion by Cuban exiles into Cuba in 1961 that failed disastrously, leading to the capture of hundreds and hundreds of CIA-trained exiles. And Rogovan was secretly working for the CIA to help release them. Years later, he became publicly the CIA's own general counsel, and he won the CIA's Intelligence Medal for his great career services to the CIA. So basically, we know that while he was at the IRS, he was basically acting, among other things, as their liaison to the CIA to protect CIA foundations from prosecution by the IRS. Now, you mentioned Semenenko earlier and wanting to come back to him. Why is he so key? Because he gets mentioned, I'd, I'd have to look, but a, a number of times throughout your article. Semenenko is not himself a mobster. And in fact, uh, there are, although there are a number of mobsters who I highlight in my piece, what's really critical about this community that I'm writing about uh, that uh, 
I've termed the super mob. And I use that term from a book of that name by investigative reporter Gus Russo. It's a superb history of uh, lesser known organized crime figures who had an outside role in organized crime and in American business in the 20th century. And the reason is they're not the kind of traditional types you read about in, in uh, cheap novels and even in Hollywood representations of uh, you know, The Sopranos or The Godfather, uh, both of which are very fine works of, of art, but uh, not entirely, I think, fair characterizations of organized crime in America. As widely depicted, organized crime was basically run by a bunch of low-life Italian-American criminal organizations in a number of major American cities. And this is the model that the FBI, after years of denying the existence of organized crime, finally came around to acknowledging it and then called it La Cosa Nostra. In other words, there's this picture we have of organized crime where it exists away from you know, legitimate uh, white collar uh, sort of business world um, stuff. So that, that's the image we're given, but the picture you're saying that exists is actually very different. Indeed, that's right. And in fact, this is very important in understanding both the history of organized crime and the history of of our understanding of organized crime was that it was depicted in the media and by government and so on as a foreign entity within our midst. And of course, what other major threat to, to the US was like a foreign entity in our midst? Communism. So the two in fact were followed very much similar model in maintaining this myth of American purity and exceptionalism that was then threatened by outside forces trying to come in and undermine our pure system. By the 1950s, the threat of organized crime was being subsumed very heavily by the threat of communism. And that's because FBI director J. Edgar Hoover basically didn't want to acknowledge the existence of organized crime and spent all of his time fighting communism and and maintaining it was the world's biggest threat, even though he had so thoroughly penetrated the American Communist Party that it didn't move a muscle without him knowing it. Um, But the reality is that organized crime grew up organically in this country, as in most countries, just as part of uh, the kind of natural ebb and flow of of the economy and of social development. There were existing business people and entrepreneurs who cut corners to make money, and they found eager minions in many of the new immigrants coming to the country from many different countries who were desperate to make a living uh, when they had a difficult time getting jobs, who faced often a great deal of ethnic discrimination, who formed gangs to try to get some leg up uh, politically or economically. And so many, some of them gravitated to crime. Many, of course, became upstanding citizens. But uh, the reality was in certain major cities like New York and Chicago, 
Uh, Italians were certainly a major part of organized crime, <clears throat> but uh, so were many other ethnic groups, uh, Irish Americans, Jewish Americans who came from especially Russia and Eastern Europe and sometimes from Germany. Uh, <clears throat> Chicago was interesting because uh, its kind of most famous criminal leader, Al Capone, was uh, of Italian origin, I believe Neapolitan. Some others were of Sicilian origin, which, you know, if you know Italy is a very different place. They wouldn't have considered themselves barely part of the same country. Uh, one of Capone's right-hand men was a Welsh American. Others were Greek, uh, Jewish, and so forth. So he had a truly multi-ethnic criminal organization. It was sometimes called the Capone mob or the outfit. And uh, Chicago had a very large Jewish population, uh, which produced you know, a whole slew of stellar figures in American uh, culture, business, law, and so forth, but also produced a share of stellar criminals who, unlike those depicted in uh, some of these major movies, were much, much less known. And they, their very success is defined by the fact that they stayed out of the headlines. A very good rule of thumb is that by the time you've heard of a major criminal, he or she probably isn't that powerful anymore. Because of course they become lightning rods for uh, criminal prosecution and investigation. It becomes very hard for them to move a muscle. Uh, a famous example was <clears throat> uh, Sam Giancana, who was in fact head of the Chicago outfit for a number of years in the 1960s, especially. And uh, he was just virtually hounded to death by the Kennedy Justice Department and finally basically had to flee the country for Mexico. Things got so bad. So, you know, he was still a powerful man, but his power was just greatly circumscribed by the fact that uh, he had FBI agents on his tail 24 seven, drove him literally almost crazy. So the, the smarter ones were the ones who stayed out of the FBI's uh, purview. And we may later in our discussion get to one of these. There was a, a Chicago-born uh, lawyer I write about named Sidney Korshak. In 1964, at a time when, when uh, Sam Giancana was being hounded by the FBI, Korshak put on a charity fundraiser for a major Chicago hospital and sitting at his table for this charity was none other than J. Edgar Hoover. And at this time, Korshak was probably the top lawyer for the Chicago mob, basically representing their, their interests in, in the labor movement, in the entertainment industry, in Las Vegas. And there he was sitting across the table from J. Edgar Hoover. You can't get more powerful than that. And I, I was just going to add to that, and we're going to talk about Korshak more because He's one of those figures that I think uh, is part of what could be called the hidden history of 20th century America. Uh, but it's interesting because I think there is this idea that people have that um, organized crime and the world of the legitimate, the the overworld of power, they, oh, they they never meet. You know, once someone goes legit, uh, they never involve themselves with, uh, you know, these criminal elements. And yet you know, we see that there's a, an interlock there. 
And uh, it's funny. I like how Gus Russo in Super Mob actually refers to uh, Korshak and his crew and, and their many tentacles as essentially, you know, the quintessential capitalists that stressed brains over brawn and evolved into a real estate powerhouse and organized labor autocracy and a media empire. That's absolutely right. Uh, these are the guys who, you know, don't go to jail and they retire rich. And uh, even someone who kind of reflects, to use that stereotype that sometimes is made of uh, these Jewish criminals who kind of were the brainy ones and the Italians were the brawn. That's, I'm sure, a stereotype, but there was some truth to it. But even in the, among those categories, there were clear differences. Meyer Lansky, who is a very, very famous name in the mob, uh, was the quintessential Jewish gangster who kind of knew his way around money. He, he was a pioneer in money laundering, taking proceeds out of uh, illegally out of Las Vegas casinos and casinos in Cuba and elsewhere, laundering those through various bank accounts to hide them from the IRS and so on and so forth. The real pioneer in all of that. But by most accounts, he lost an awful lot of his money and ostensibly died penniless, which I don't believe for a minute. But uh, you know, he was under such close FBI scrutiny that he ended up having to live very modestly. He lived a rather unhappy life. Versus one of his old colleagues from Prohibition era, Morris Daylitz of Cleveland, who was involved in the same kind of illegal gambling operations in the Midwest, labor racketeering, uh, investing in Cuban gambling, but in some ways much smarter than Lansky, he figured out that he could invest legally in Las, in Las Vegas, taking advantage of Nevada's gambling laws with enough, uh, enough payoffs to Nevada's political leadership to get them to turn a blind eye to his illegal past. And he basically built a couple of the major hotel casinos, ingratiated himself, built hospitals and, and real estate empires, and uh, basically died one of America's richest men. So he, to me, is the ultimate example of the successful gangster who, who makes that successful transfer from organized crime to legitimate and honored businessman and uh, winning awards from various organizations for his many contributions to the state of Israel, for example. Uh, so that's the group that I, along with Gus Rousseau, think is really most worthy of study because they became the big American successes and they did so through ways that history is obscured because of their success, uh, people have, have often overlooked their early criminal days. You alluded earlier to this fellow, Serge Semenenko, who is a uh, extremely successful vice president at First National Bank of Boston. He was of Russian descent, but not Jewish, unlike some of these other people in the super mob. Uh, First National Bank of Boston was interesting because it was a major blue blood institution, uh, the major financing house of most major New England enterprises, 
uh, including, I might add, United Fruit Company, which is a great interest of mine because of its role in Guatemala with the CIA. But uh, it turns out that bank was also laundering money for the New England mafia, <coughs> uh, headed by a guy named Patriarca. So it had, again, uh, serving both the top legal capitalists, the ones who went to all the prep schools and to Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and then to these low-life mafia types. And Semenenko kind of broke the mold at, at an cons otherwise conservative bank by investing very freewheeling large amounts of bank money into uh, high-flying new industries like entertainment. He financed many of the Hollywood studios and in a great deal of real estate like the Hilton Hotel Corporation. And I talk about both of these industries. He was using David Baird's foundations for many of his transactions, including multi-million dollar personal transactions, basically trading on insider information that he got away with for years uh, to make millions and millions off of his bank deals with these companies. But basically he and Baird were kind of at the interface of organized crime money that was going into finance Hollywood studios and major uh, hotel chains like Hilton. I talk about Hilton and how some of its earliest financial backers were uh, <clears throat> investors from the Chicago outfit. So they were the ones who helped put Conrad Hilton, the owner of Hilton uh, <clears throat> hotels on the map. And I might add that Sidney Korshak was uh, their attorney. And he was attorney to a great many hotel companies and uh, uh, Hollywood companies. The reason was that he, through his criminal connections, could control labor unions that could make or break some of these companies through their strikes. And, so and could, real, real quick, I just want to note, um, and I, I want to get back into what you're saying, but it's important to note that Korshak and his associates, uh, this thing that you could call the super mob, they sort of keep an arm's length in a way from the Italian and Irish elements of organized crime while also sort of cozying up to judges and politicians uh, locally and nationally because that basically made them untouchable and they, they would uh, have their own lawyers like Jake Arvey um, who would work for them. That's right. Uh, Jake Arvey, who you referred to, was one of the kind of major political forces in Chicago. He started off as a ward boss, in the 24th Ward of Chicago, a, most, a sort of heavily Jewish ward, very close family friend of the Korshaks. Uh, the Korshaks, by the way, I should add, Sidney Korshak, who we've been talking about, was the grandson of a, uh, a uh, Russian Jew who emigrated from Kyiv. So here we have Kyiv, which is now the capital of Ukraine, is all in the news. And uh, you know, Putin thinks of it as historically part of Russia. Well, it was historically part of Russia when uh, the Korshaks emigrated in the, in the late 19th century. A little curiosity. But um, uh, Korshak, as a well-known, uh, so-called legitimate lawyer who moved from Chicago to Beverly Hills 
was famous for his whining and dining of politicians and uh, celebrities uh, and so forth. But he certainly reported to the top people in the Capone organization. And the man he reported to in particular was a guy often considered maybe the number two man in the Capone organization <clears throat> named Murray Humphreys, who was a Welsh American. And uh, Humphreys was very clear to Korshak that uh, he better not get out of line or he would be whacked, i.e. killed. But in general, they had uh, very comfortable relations as long as Korshak rem remembered uh, who was calling the shots. Korshak largely flew under the radar, but in the early 1940s, his name surfaced in public court testimony in a very, very uh, major case involving the Chicago mob's extortion of Hollywood movie studios in the 1930s. This was a huge, huge case where multiple studios were paying money to the Chicago mob to buy labor peace. And uh, <clears throat> basically, everyone was uh, you know, under threat of death, remained silent about this until finally uh, a couple of key participants talked and, and turned uh, witnesses for the government. And it put several of the top leaders of the Chicago mob into prison for a number of years until they were paroled by the Truman administration under circumstances I discuss in my book, Dark Quadrant. But uh, Korshak's name came up as the man to see when it came to fixing, uh, when the Chicago mob needed uh, its affairs to be fixed in Hollywood or vice versa, Korshak was the guy. So this later was dredged up, uh, I believe by Reader's Digest, which was a very anti-labor kind of conservative publication. But they ran some very powerful articles on organized crime and they embarrassed Korshak by dredging up this long forgotten testimony. But by and large, Korshak, he was almost never discussed in the pages of the Los Angeles Times, which was quite a scandal, retrospectively. <clears throat> Basically, the Times felt he was too powerful to touch until after he was dead. Well, the there's, time... people, there's people that would write about him, but they'd only write like a series on him and then they'd back off. Like uh, Seymour Hersh did a whole series on Korshak and then was like, uh, that was the, That this. was literally, I was just going to mention that, that was literally the first major expose of Korshak, aside from maybe one article mentioning him in, the, in Reader's Digest. 1975 was the first time any major journalistic investigation was done. And that I must say was not a trivial affair. It was a multi-day series by uh, <clears throat> Seymour Hirsch, one of the leading investigative reporters in America and Jeff Gerth, then a, a much younger guy who then broke, in quotes, the Whitewater Affair, which is rather controversial whether he broke something real or not. But uh, they did a major, very impressive expose of Korshak, uh, which was followed up by Doonesbury cartoons that got uh, Governor Brown into trouble because Governor Brown had been in bed with Korshak for a long time. So, uh, but it took until 1975 for any major report in the US media to seriously investigate Korshak, which is a real testament to his power and influence. And real quickly, before we start wrapping up, uh, what are some other key points 
that you would bring up about Sydney Korshak that you think my listeners should know if they're interested in this subject? Basically, that uh, he really did represent, not alone, but represent this interface of the upper world and the underworld. He was uniquely influential with the Teamsters Union, for example, which the Chicago mob basically controlled uh, the investment of Teamster pension funds, which was billions of dollars. And they helped steer Teamster pension money into hotels, entertainment, casinos, you name it. So uh, you can see kind of how powerful an influence he could be over that. Wasn't alone, one of his closest associates from uh, Chicago was a man named Paul Ziffrin, a fellow lawyer, very, very close. Paul Ziffrin became the Democratic National Committeeman from, uh, for California, basically just around the time of the Democratic Convention, President the Convention in 1960, where Jack Kennedy was nominated president. Prior to that, their mentor, Jake Arvey, had been the political power who basically helped broker the Democratic conventions of 1952 and 1956 in Chicago that led to the uh, <coughs> uh, endorsement of Adlai Stevenson. So this group from Chicago, and of course, there are people in the super mob who are not from Chicago, but really had a remarkable influence over national politics as well as their city and regional politics. They also had major outsized influences I show in my article over the whole development of American capitalism in the 1950s and 60s, where the huge merger boom that was uh, the subject of myriad articles now somewhat forgotten, but these were called the go-go years and it was the biggest merger movement in American history uh, of the past 50 years, that it was driven very, very heavily by investors who had these mob connections and access to criminal money. Not only criminal money, but they were representing this kind of uh, underworld, overworld uh, symbiosis. And I think the whole history, both of American organized crime and of American business and capitalism needs to be seen through, through the lens of their partnership. And then I bring in the CIA just to show that this partnership was so powerful that it even sucked in and involved uh, you know, America's premier intelligence agency and profited from the political protection that it could provide. So there's a tremendous amount of history that remains to be unearthed here. And I'm hoping that this article uh, takes an important step toward kind of pointing the right direction for historians and, and others interested in the true story of American history. So a few odds and ends here. Uh, it, it's interesting because this connection between world of intelligence and uh, you know the, the super mob, I mean, you even see it with a, a figure like Alan Dulles. You know, Peter Dill Scott has talked about that, you know, where, you know, he was very close to the world of Wall Street. Alan Dulles was much closer to the world of Wall Street than to organized crime. He was a major corporate lawyer for Sullivan and Cromwell. His famous brother, John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State while Alan was director of the CIA, was the senior partner at their firm, Sullivan and Cromwell. So 
Uh, and many, as I alluded, many, many top CIA people were investment, Wall Street investment bankers or corporate lawyers. Alan Dulles himself was not particularly close to the mob. He, uh, it was during his leadership of the CIA that these uh, connections to mob leaders to assassinate Castro were undertaken. But it's not that Dulles, and Dulles allowed that to happen because he was pretty much amoral when it came to serving the needs of uh, anti-communism. But it was not that Dulles himself had longstanding connections to organized crime. But, but there are these connections between sort of this nexus between Wall Street, organized crime, and the CIA, and, and you sort of see all these figures uh, coalescing in their own ways. Well, there, there, you know, many of those are discussed in my paper, but you, the only reason I'm hesitating is it's a mistake to just be paint all this with too loose a brush and just say, oh yeah, they're all just kind of in bed together. There are lots of organized crime figures who did not have particularly close relations with Wall Street and lots of Wall Street people who didn't have particularly close relations. Or they had uh, conflicting interests on one end and then interests that came together on the other end. It's, it's a very messy picture. Yeah, but I'm just saying we need to be scrupulously empirical here and not uh, paint with too broad a brush. That's one of my complaints about some alternative histories and especially conspiracy related histories is that they can become a little too sweeping and lose the, the granular detail that's very important to understanding these events. Now, in regards to Sidney Korshak, and I'm assuming some listeners have heard this criticism of Gus Russo. I don't think it's a fair criticism, uh, but some people will say, well, he's talking about Sidney Korshak and these other figures, and they happen to be Jewish. And people will say, this is, this is just an anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theory. How do you respond to that? And also, since you mentioned uh, the connections between organized crime and Democrats at, at times, uh, I, I think a lot of people, the sort of Roger Stones of the world, try to paint uh, 20th century organized crime as being a, a, a thing of the Democratic Party, when really, I don't think that's a fair picture either. Well, it's absolutely not a fair picture. And in my book, Dark Quadrant, I have a uh, major discussion of Richard Nixon's crime uh, connections to organized crime. I have a, another essay on the publisher's website that further delves into his history of relations with organized crime. And I certainly talk about Trump and Reagan's ties to organized crime. So, And it, absolutely... it also, it sounds like, you know, if we're to be honest about it, a lot of these organized crime figures, it's not like they're real friends of uh, the, the workers and the proletariat. No, of course not. But, uh, that's true of, unfortunately, a lot of uh, Democratic uh, figures. They're not particularly friends, actually, of labor. There you know, can be rich people who buy influence within the Democratic Party to try to prevent reform from happening. Basically, you need to think of organized crime as opportunistic. And uh, when they are living under democratic administrations, they'll seek to subvert them for their own ends. And when they're living under Republican administrations, they'll do the same with Republicans. They go where the power is. They don't, they're not terribly ideological. They are, the one place they are ideological is they're very anti-communist because they don't want anyone expropriating their money. 
But uh, beside that, there's no particular affinity for Democrats or Republicans one over the other. Um, as far as uh, the anti-Semitism charge, it's certainly true that Rousseau focuses a lot on <clears throat> uh, figures who've hitherto been kind of little uh, discussed in histories of organized crime. Many of them are Jewish. And I think he was simply filling in a gap. You know, it's also true that people have accused traditional writers on organized crime of being anti-Italian. And Joe Colombo, who was one of the heads of the New York Mafia, organized an Italian-American Civil Rights League to try to uh, attack uh, people writing on the Mafia and prevent filming of the movie The Godfather because it was going to be too, you know, and I think he prevented them from using the term mafia in the movie as part of the deal. I might add that the film company that made that movie, Paramount, was represented by Sidney Korshak. <laughs> and the uh, producer of the movie has, in his memoir, paid tribute to Korshak's unbelievable influence. Uh, I can try to look up his quote if you want me to. Uh, he basically... Uh, the producer of The Godfather wrote, <clears throat> uh, let's just say a nod from Korshak and the Teamsters change management, he wrote. A nod from Korshak and Santa Anita racetrack closes. A nod from Korshak and Madison Square Garden stays open. A nod from Korshak and Vegas shuts down. A nod from Korshak and the Dodgers suddenly can play night baseball, unquote. So there you have it. Uh, I don't think, you know, when you've got testimony like that about Korshak's influence that you can accuse Gus Rousseau of being uh, anti-Semitic. He's just being a realist writing about a long overlooked and very influential figure in American history of uh, business and organized crime. <clears throat> I just wanted to add to that really briefly too. I think that, you know, covering Korshak and the super mob is not the same as uh, saying, oh, you, you know, the, the elders of Zion rule the, the world. Or, you know, I don't think Russo takes this approach where he thinks, uh, you know, a handful of, of Jewish people run the entire world. He doesn't take uh, some oversimplified view. All he's saying is that uh, people like Korshak were very influential. Absolutely. And, you know, he's talking about Korshak reporting to Murray Humphreys, a Welsh American. He's not saying the Welsh ruled the world either. Uh, he's just talking about the sort of ethnic complexity of organized crime and the fact that a uh, truly remarkable group of uh, you know, striving immigrants uh, from Chicago who you know, fled poverty and oppression in, uh, uh, from Imperial Russia came and most of them made you know, tremendous good in America and a few of them lent their talents to more nefarious activities. And those happen to be the ones he's focusing on. But it's certainly no, you know, he's not talking about some big Jewish conspiracy here. Well, Jonathan Marshall, I think that's a, a great note to end on. We covered all the bases here. Uh, anything you wanna say in closing uh, to people that want to study these topics more in depth, and uh, maybe you can let my listeners know how they can get a hold of your book. Uh, the book, uh, Dark Quadrant, uh, Organized Crime, Big Business, 
and uh, the corruption of American democracy from Truman to Trump is available from good independent bookstores and of course from Amazon. I highly encourage you to take a look at it. I think you'll find a lot of really eye-opening new history there, including about some of the topics we've discussed today. And uh, if you Google Jonathan Marshall and uh, Wall Street, the super mob and the CIA, you'll quickly come up with my latest long article. And uh, I hope you find that stimulating as well, a whole new perspective on sort of American economic history of the, of the last century. And I guess the only last thing would be to uh, both appreciate that there's a lot more to our history than conventional history tells us. And at the same time, to be careful and skeptical because uh, it's all too easy when you realize that conventional history isn't telling you the full story to kind of let the floodgates open and just believe anything you read out there. And I believe you've got to be highly disciplined about <clears throat> the facts and being careful about your sources because uh, so much garbage is written about organized crime, about the CIA and so forth and so on, that you have to be really diligent. And that's, of course, hard to do as a reader, but uh, uh, I can assure you that I've been very careful and very selective in my use of sources. I try to be particularly careful to use mostly original sources from FBI records, CIA records, uh, archives, and so on to, to get an unvarnished, unfiltered view of the evidence. <clears throat> and uh, I encourage readers, as I say, to be careful in their approach to these very controversial topics. And thank you again, Jonathan Marshall, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks so much. We'll talk again. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan Marshall, author of Dark Quadrant, Organized Crime, Big Business, and the Corruption of America from Truman to Trump. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. All the information about how you can donate to the show is on there. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. 
I'm not a trace. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.